Morning. Uh, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Alison. Uh, let me ask you a question. I know I often start with questions. Why change the habit of a lifetime? Uh, and this is question is primarily directed to those, those who are Christians, but it's not exclusively for Christians. Have you been or have you found yourself seduced in any way this week by the world? or by the surrounding culture in which you live? Have you been enticed away from God, away from godliness and discipleship by a flickering screen, by the contents or the images of a digital screen? Have you been enticed away from God by lust, by a desire for more, have you been allured down a particular path in your thinking and in your behavior that has been less than helpful? I suppose what I'm asking in part is this, as you have been in the world this week, have you found yourself at any point part of this world this week? Someone has said that the greatest challenge facing Christians today is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. I suppose in our particular context, that's probably a fair point. Now, I realize some of you are thinking like, David, what has this got to do with Revelation 17? And that yet again, out there Bible text that we've just read. It's a good question. But amidst and alongside all the wildness of that chapter is quite possibly an insight, a further insight into why it is actually so hard to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in this world. I know we've been making the point during this series that we as Christians are involved in a battle and our fight, according to elsewhere in Scripture, our fight is not against flesh and blood. But part of the conflict that we find ourselves in is a battle for our minds and a battle for our hearts. And if the world, if this immoral, idolatrous, materialistic world and culture that we live in, if it can pollute our minds, if it can twist our thinking and cause our hearts to seek after other gods and cause our hearts to compromise, then we're in trouble and then we start losing this fight. So, where's your head and your heart been at this week? Who or what has had the greatest influence on them. If you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, it'd be really helpful. Revelation 17. And you can see from verse 1 that this is a follow-on from chapter 16. It's a follow-on from the seven bowls. But right up front, we're introduced, or rather, John is told he's going to be shown the judgment of the great prostitute, the great harlot, the great whore, depending on whichever version of the Bible you've got, any or all of them makes for quite uncomfortable reading on a Sunday morning. But this is a new character. This is a striking new character, or is she? And she is seated, according to verse 1, she is seated on many waters. If you jump down to verse 15, we don't need to wreck our heads wondering, what does that mean, she's seated on many waters? Because verse 15 says, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated... They are peoples and multitudes 
and nations and languages. So this prostitute has got serious influence on humanity. Worldwide influence right across the globe. Her reach and her impact is further indicated and explained in verse 2 where kings of the earth are getting off with her. And just to broaden out her sphere of influence even further, the people of this world, earth dwellers, again, depending on your translation, they are getting drunk on her immorality. She is intoxicating. The pleasures of this world are. And John is then carried away in the spirit. And we discover what he sees next. And what he sees next is a woman. Now, this is not the first woman that John has seen in these visions. If you go back to chapter 12, he saw a different woman, a very different woman in chapter 12. But this one in chapter 17, the great prostitute, she's sitting on a scarlet beast, which is full of blasphemous names, and it's got seven heads and ten horns. Now, for those who are following this series, you will immediately know who that is. That is beast number one. That is the beast from the sea. Back in Revelation 13, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its head. So, we all know who she's riding on. It's one of that unholy trinity, along with the dragon, Satan, and beast number two, the one from the earth. This beast Revelation 17 beast represents any and all human kingdoms, empires, and states that have rejected God and who operate and function in ways that threaten, that suppress, that undermine and damage the ways and the people of God. And so this woman, this prostitute is sitting on, she is in cahoots with, she is in league with the kingdoms of this world, and she is impressive looking. She's dressed in purple and scarlet. She's decked out in gold and jewelry and pearls. It's not hard to see why she catches the eye, why she turns heads, why she turns hearts. And in her hands, a cup. And it's a golden cup and it's full. It's full of mess. It's full of filth. It's a cocktail and it's brimming with abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. That's what's on her drinks menu, and people are ordering. People are downing sexual immorality. They're consuming porn, for example. They've got a taste for ungodliness and greed and pride and lying and stirring up trouble within their families and wrong behavior, all of which are named abominations, by the way. The temptation to take a sip or to take a bellyful, so real, so regular. I ask again, how's your week been? Has anybody had a drink from her cup this week? At this point in his vision, John discovers more about the identity of this whore. 
because written on her forehead is a name. Now, this idea of names on foreheads is quite common in Revelation, and it's not about literal marks. It's about identity and ideology. And so, for example, the mark of the beast is not going to be tattooed on anybody's head. But there are many people today whose identity and beliefs are heavily influenced and dictated by beast number one, by human kingdoms, by empires, by states. So many people today carry the identity and the ideology of beast number one. But this woman's identity, her forehead name, which as it says is mysterious, is this, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. That's quite a name. Not sure it's going to catch on. But let me break it down for you or attempt to. So it starts, Babylon Great. Now, this is not the first reference to Babylon in Revelation. Again, if you've been following the series, you will know that it appears in chapter 14. It appeared in chapter 16, and it's going to feature a lot in the next two chapters. It's not literal Babylon. It's not the literal place. It's a code word, which in biblical terms has a long history. So if you go right back to Genesis 11, you've got the Tower of Babel or Babel, and Babylon is derived from that word. But back in Genesis 11, the people decided, and they determined to do something. They decided to build a tower. They decided to make a name for themselves. What they wanted to do was to build a city. They wanted to build a society without God. And so Babylon became and becomes a way of referring to places and environments that have turned their back on God, that have determined to do their own thing, go their own way, oppose God, follow their own desires, their own dark desires. And so in the Old Testament, Babylon is Babylon, but so is Nineveh, and so is Egypt, and so is Persia. And when you come into the New Testament, it is, for the first readers of this, letters, it, this letter, it is Rome. Of course it is. So Peter, for example, whenever he's writing his first epistles to Christians in exiles, he refers to Rome as Babylon. But it doesn't stop there. Yes, it was Rome in that day in the first century for the original readers of this letter, but it's been more than Rome. And so this prostitute mysteriously named Babylon the Great is, to quote Robert Mounts from his commentary on Revelation, it is that great system of godlessness that leads people away from the worship of God. That's Babylon. This whore has been about, she's been around for a long time, or her influence has, because as her forehead, na forehead name continues, she is the mother of prostitutes. There's been a lot of them. Again, to quote someone else. She is an ever-present presence, reality, and seductress that exists and entices in every age, in every generation. There's more. She's the mother of earth's abominations. It's a strong term. It effectively means anything that is an offense or is offensive to God. Sexual immorality for sure, but so much more idolatry those godless thoughts and words and actions, greed, that lying tongue, that troublemaking within our families. This woman's agenda, her allure and her influence is quite shocking. And I want you to notice that she quite enjoys targeting Christians. Look at verse six. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. She gets off 
She gets off her head on seeing life being taken and drained from saints and martyrs, drained literally and figuratively. This woman will accept anyone's attention, but she especially wants to impact the lifeblood, the spiritual health and well-being of believers. And so notice John's initial reaction, and in some ways this is quite surprising, although maybe it's not. John said, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. Wow. This prostitute holds John's gaze for just a little bit too long. He's taken in. He likes what he sees. Or at least he's intrigued. See, even John is not immune from the seduction of this woman. Even John's not immune from the seduction of this world and this culture which tempts and entices all of us and puts us under its spell all too often. And the angel has to step in and quickly, and the angel says, why do you marvel, John? Snap out of it, shut it down, turn it off, unplug, uninstall. Refocus, take that thought captive, John, David. Maybe that's going too far. Maybe John was just struck by our appearance. Maybe he was just impressed. But even then, if he's just impressed, that's dangerous because seduction is only one, only one unguarded moment away. And the angel then tells John that he's going to explain the mystery of the woman and the beast, and he starts with the beast. And twice in verse 8, he uses a phrase that sounds very familiar, who was, who is not, and who is about to rise, or who is about to come. That smacks, doesn't it, of something? That smacks of the life, who was, the death, who is not, and the resurrection of Jesus, the one who is to rise. Smacks of a description of the lamb from earlier in Revelation who was and is and is to come. And I don't want to read too much into this, but if the beast can parody, if the beast can make a mockery of Jesus, then it's going to do that whenever possible. But there's more to this, and it's something we've covered already in Revelation regarding the beast and the identity of the beast. Because you see, when one godless human empire, state, and kingdom comes and goes, who was Rome, who was Nazi Germany, who is not Rome, who is not Nazi Germany, there's almost always another one to rise up and take its place. That's just the nature of the beast. It's happened throughout history. It's happening today, and it's going to keep happening until was, is not, is to come. And the thing about each and all of them is this, the beast, all these human empires, kingdoms, states, they love the prostitute more than they love God. And so they're happy enough for her to jump on. Happy to entertain and promote her sexual immorality. Happy to entertain and promote her idolatry, her anti-Christian, anti-God value system. Even happy in certain places to satisfy her thirst for blood and sanction the persecution and killing of believers. And people are taken in. 
middle of verse 8, the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of earth, they marvel to see this beast and its rider. Unbelievers, not yet Christians, worship there. They remain on team beast because remember there are only two choices. There are only two sides. Either you're with Jesus or you're not. And then there's a whole bit about the seven heads and ten horns. The first explanation is pretty straightforward where the angel says, verse 9, the seven heads are seven hills on which the woman is seated. Everybody reading this letter first time round in those seven churches in Asia Minor to whom it was addressed would have immediately known who that was referring to. It was referring to Rome because as they knew and we know Rome was built on seven hills. And so the beast on which the woman is seated, the beast who's carrying Babylon is Rome at this time, first century. Now in verses 10 to 12, there's more about the seven heads because not only are the seven heads seven hills, there are also seven kings, great. And the 10 horns are 10 kings. And down through the years, people have attempted to guess the exact identity of these 17 kings. And no one can be certain. There are possibilities. There's maybe even a few probabilities, but there's never been a consensus. And I'm not sure there's ever meant to be. And so Tim Chester, in his popular commentary on Revelation, makes the point that these symbolic numbers don't refer to specific kings, but instead, John is highlighting the way the beast manifests its power in recurring political empires and systems throughout history. And for me, that makes a ton of sense. And so, for example, after Domitian in Rome, who was in power at that time, there followed many other kings and kingdoms that didn't honor, that didn't serve God, and which continued and continue to carry and accommodate the prostitute. It's just the world we live in. And there's an interesting line in verse 12 about the time-limited nature and influence of certain kings and earthly kingdoms. They are to receive authority as kings for an hour together with the beast. And again, when it comes to numbers and times in Revelation, we're talking symbols, not statistics. And so one R is surely a reference to the fact that in the grand scheme of things and times, their diabolical influence and impact is really brief, short-lived, 60 minutes. And in verse 14, there is a massive boost massive boost of encouragement to those Christians who are reading this letter for the first time, and therefore all subsequent Christians who read it to date, including us. They, beast and its rider, they will make war on the Lamb. That is, these kingdoms and kingdoms, these recurring political empires and systems, as I say, the beast and its whore, They'll reel against Jesus. They'll reel against his ways and his values and his kingdom and his people. But and this is the hope of Revelation. This is where it's all heading. This is what lies ahead and soon. And the lamb will conquer them. That's a dead cert 
And why will the Lamb conquer them? For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, the one who is above and beyond, the one who surpasses and suppresses, the only true Lord and King. He will win. He will defeat evil. He will usher in his eternal, beastless, whoreless kingdom. And who will be with him? Who will be there forever? Those who are called chosen, faithful, called by God to belong to his family, chosen from or before the creation of the world and faithful followers of Jesus, despite the pressures, despite the mess-ups, despite the seduction of the woman. We'll be there on the winning side. And the hope that this instilled or must have instilled in the lives and discipleship of the believers of those seven churches is hard to quantify. Because you see, whenever you're seeing, whenever you're experiencing, whenever you're feeling the onslaught and the effects of the beast of Rome and the effects of its rider, the world, the culture around whenever the empire, state, and culture are attempting to squeeze the life out of you, whenever they're threatening you, whenever they're seducing you to compromise, to deny your very faith, the discovery that things are not as they seem or not only as they seem, there is this reality that the lamb will conquer and you are on his side. That was written, that was shared to encourage and inspire, to comfort and challenge these Christians, to hang in there, to stay true, to remain faithful, to see the bigger picture. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. But there's more to what John sees in this vision. And this is striking because what John is told by the angel is that at some point evil's going to turn in on itself. It's going to implode. It's, on itself. it's going to self-destruct. The ten horns that you saw and the beast, they're going to hate the harlot. Verse 16. They're going to eat her flesh. They're going to burn her up with fire, and by now we should be getting used to this symbolic, shocking language and imagery. But the point, the end game is clear. What they have sown, they will reap. And note verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. You see, God orchestrates the collapse of evil by allowing its corruption to lead to, lead to its own destruction. Someday it's going to turn in on itself. Its days are numbered. Evil is not going to have the last word. Babylon will fall. Rome did. There were very many others before her, and they fell too. And all those after Rome have fallen and will continue to do so. But until that final fall... Until the war is over and the Lamb returns and conquers on that great and coming day, we find ourselves, if you like, caught in the crossfire. And so we're in a battle. And we're constantly under the pressure of Babylon-ness. And so you and I feel her seductive powers, don't we? Or is it just me? alluring us away from the Lamb. 
inviting us to take a sip from our cup. David entertained sexual immorality. Click on that next image and linger there. Exclude God from that particular area of your life. Just, just do your own thing in that. As long as you've got everything else, like, that's okay. But this area, just go with it. Satisfy your desires, regardless of godliness. Love money. Having it so, having it so good, but actually love it. Desire more. Don't get satisfied. Stir up trouble within your family. Don't just live in this world. Be off it. The greatest challenge we face as Christians is not persecution from the world, it's seduction by it. Whatever we do, church, let us not marvel at Babylon. Instead, Look to Jesus, look to the Lamb, marvel at Him, and know that you're on the winning side because you're called, you're chosen, you're faithful. And so next week as we read on in the chapter 18, and the end is nigh. So many ways. But as we read on in the chapter 18 next week, we'll discover more about the fall of this prostitute. But we're going to close this morning. The guys want to come back. We're going to close this morning with that song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And the reason I've chosen it is because of the last verse. I think I've got the words up here. Yeah, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Just before we sing this, can I just leave a bit of space for a moment? Because this world will seek to seduce us. And it is my tendency, I'm going to be really honest, it's my tendency to veer off course. I'm prone to wander. And I do feel it. And I don't know if you're sitting here this morning and you feel it and you felt it this week and you have taken a sip. And we do need at times to keep coming back and saying, God, here's my heart again. Will you take it and you see, will you seal it? Will you seal it for your courts above? And so, just take a moment of silence. And if you need to say anything to God, then do. And then we'll stand and sing.